The book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 20 to 35. Loaders or lifters. In our last discussion, we saw Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. What were they doing there? Well, they had done a great job. They've gone on their first missionary trip, um, preaching to the Gentile world. And they've come back to Antioch, the church that sent them into, the, into that world. And they've come to give a feedback, report back. And they're spending time with the church. They are teaching them. And while he's there in Antioch, Satan sends some guys from Jerusalem to bring false teaching. They bring an edited gospel, not the gospel that Paul and them had been preaching. And this is what they say. In order to be saved, you must be circumcised. We spoke at length about that last week. That must be horrible. You accept Jesus, you uh, get baptized, and then you are in this new faith community. And then these guys come from Jerusalem, the heart of where the gospel came from. They say, no, sorry, that's not enough. Repentance, faith, baptism, that's not enough. If you want to be saved, you have to go go see a doctor quickly and, and sort that out, sort out the circumcision. So they were essentially saying Jesus is not enough, right? Jesus is not enough. The gospel is not enough. You have to cut your body as well. And as I said last week, you could see that this is annoying to Paul and Barnabas. Why? Well, they've just gone to preach the gospel all over the world. They've told thousands of people in Lystra, in Derby, in city in Antioch, in Iconium. They've told all of these Gentiles, hey... Just accept Jesus, obey the gospel, and you'll be saved. And they've seen the power of the Holy Spirit work in those places. They've seen people's lives change. And now they get here, and then suddenly these guys are bringing a totally new message for even the people that they've taught. Can you imagine what they must think? Um, I thought Jesus saves us. Oh, now, but now other guys from Jerusalem say this. So, so what is it? So they, they're wreaking confusion now confusion. So he's, he's upset about that. Paul and Barnabas is upset about that because they are turning good news into bad news. Are you telling me that if God's going to, for me to be saved, I have to cut my physical body? Uh, you, you can imagine. So, so Paul and Barnabas with some other people were selected to go down to Jerusalem, to go hear from the guys in Jerusalem, to go hear from the apostles, the guys who walked with Jesus. Hey, what do you guys say about this story? Because these guys came from you. They came from the church in Jerusalem. So let's go talk to the church leaders and hear what they have to say. Obviously, it would have been easier in those days if you had emails or Skype or um, you could do FaceTime quickly. But they had to travel there to go talk to them. So um, then they are there. They've got this meeting. And who's the first person that stands up and says something? Well, it's Peter. The Apostle Peter, and he talks about what happened at Cornelius' house. He said, God saved these people when they believed. Right? When they heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And so they weren't circumcised at all. And God accepted them and loved them and saved them and forgave them. They weren't circumcised. So obviously God has given us a sign from heaven that He forgives people and saves people apart from circumcision. The next people who speak is Paul and Barnabas. They stand up in the crowd and they say, well, at the church, and they, they say, hey, listen, guys, we've just come from all over the Gentile world. We've seen these miracles. God has spoken through us 
He has revealed himself to us. He's touched um, us. And he confirmed our message. And the people are quietly listening. And then the third guy, or the person stands up, and that's James. James stands up, and he says, hey guys, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are coming to God. Don't make it difficult for them. And that's where we ended off last week. And I mentioned that we should be careful to do the same. When people um, are looking for Christ, uh, I think we should make it, we should make it more difficult for them. Like people are looking for Christ and they meet a bunch of really angry people. Well, oh, that's going to make it difficult for them to become Christians. If they meet rude Christians, they won't want to be Christians. So sometimes the church environment is also uncomfortable for people. They want to know God, but they come into church and it's like, Argh. so I think there's a lot of stuff we can learn there. Now, in the text tonight, these guys in Jerusalem, they reach a conclusion and decide to write a letter to the Gentile Christians, basically across the world. They, they decide to write a letter. That's where we are tonight. So let's read it together. So that verse 19 is where we closed off last week. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't make it difficult for them. Don't have to let them, don't say to them, oh, you need to go cut yourself before you'll be saved. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What do you think about that? Who here likes eating blood? Don't like eating blood. Who likes roadkill? <laughs> well, good. <laughs> strangled animals. Have you, who's ever eaten a strangled animal? Nobody. Yes. So, he says, well, okay, guys, you don't have to circumcise yourself, but here's four things that I think you need to focus on. If you're going to be a Christian, you come from a Gentile background, just be mindful of these four things. Four minor things that it seems like the Gentiles wouldn't know really about this. That's what it looks like. The, the, the Gentiles, um, the, the Jews would know this. The Jews would know you don't eat a strangled animal, for example. You don't eat blood. But these guys um, are, are from a Gentile background. If all Gentiles who are now Christians just change the four, these four things in their lives, the gap between Jewish and Gentile Christians should become narrower. Okay, Verse 21 is interesting for me, and I'll be honest with you, I grappled with that this morning. Why, why is that in there? Because he says, okay, these four things, do these four things, or, or avoid them, sorry. Um, and then he says, verse 21, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. Now, I think that could mean two things. I came up with two ideas. Um, although we are free in Christ, free from the Mosaic law, which is what he's referring to, just remember it has been preached for thousands of years. The Mosaic law has been preached for thousands of years all across the world in different synagogues. 
okay? And therefore, people will find it very hard to just cut things off like this. In other words, if, you, if, you're, a new, if you're a new Christian you, from a Gentile background, and you just start eating blood in front of a, of, of a Jew, he's going to find it very hard to just accept that and accept you as a brother. Because for such a long time, so many Jews across the world didn't touch the stuff. That's one possible explanation. Choose peace over offense. If, you're gonna, if you new Gentile Christians are going to go now, and you're just going to eat this type of food, um, eat strangled animals, it's going to cause problems between you and the Jewish Christians. Because they've been so accustomed to it. Old habits die hard. In this instance, we would say, well, a Jew is not easily... A Jew, even though he's become a Christian now, he's probably not going to eat blood for the rest of his life in any ways. So, that could be one meaning. Or it could mean the Jews knew these things by second nature. They knew that you don't do this. You don't fornicate. You don't eat this type of meat. You don't eat blood. They knew this. It's been preached forever. Okay? It's second nature to them, but the Gentiles don't know that. So perhaps we need to write this letter and let the Gentiles know you don't do these four things. It was appropriate then to send this letter. All right. Which do you choose? Number one or number two? All in favor of number one. You forgot what I said in number one, right? I also forgot. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, the apostles... I think to a large extent, we're going to read it now in 1 Corinthians 8 about the food sacrificed to idols. I think that they were wise when they said, listen guys, yes, you are free in Christ. You can eat any type of meat. You can go eat blood as well if you want to. But you're going to offend your Jewish brothers if you do. I think that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. Um, in the same way, I think it's wise for us in the church, or as Christians, just people that we meet, um, to be sensitive about people's traditions. You know, sometimes, you know, things are just traditions. Let me use an example to, to clap hands for this church, really. Clap hands. Do you miss our pulpit? Who misses our pulpit? You do. <laughs> you do. <laughs> that's, that's an example. It's like, it's a tradition. The pulpit is a tradition. And you guys took it in the stride when it disappeared. I didn't see any riots outside. You didn't throw out the windows. <laughs> Although you miss it. That's, that's incredible. You've, you've been incredible. But I guarantee you this. That a first century Jew wouldn't have been so gracious about a new Gentile Christian coming to sit next to him eating a puddle of blood. So, I think it's, it was wise of the apostles. And I, I would just, by the way, with the pulpit, I've really been sensitive. It took me a year and a half almost <laughs> to put a smaller one in. Because for you guys, you're big and tall. You can see everybody. It feels like I'm hidden behind a box. I'm trying to look over. Okay, I'm short and small. That's what my children tell my wife. Papa's really, really small, short. Really, really, really short. Okay. What's the next verse? Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. 
They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. And we pick up later, because I found it interesting that there were other leaders in the church. Well, what did they do? And the text later on says they were prophets. So that's fine. I don't have much to say about this verse, except what is interesting for me is how the church made decisions together with the church leaders. Do you pick that up? Um, and I think that's important. I think, I think there's a place for that because you put ownership. We are one church. It's not just a bunch of guys in a little room that make all these decisions. We are one church. We take ownership for this mission. We are part of this mission. When the apostles go, we are all sending them. We are all lifting up our hands in prayer. So we get to participate in the decisions, and then they feel part of the process. They feel part of, this is our church. It's not the leader's church, it's ours. All right, verse 23 to 29. This is the letter. It came out horribly. Oh, it should be okay. I've put it in italics. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a 2,000-year-old letter that was sent out to the Gentile world. Really cool. The apostles and elders, your brothers. I want you to imagine this. These are Jewish Christians writing to Gentile Christians. They weren't friends before Christ came. They didn't eat around the same table before Christ came. And look at the letter. To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You, to, you are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. I like the address. They are saying, your brothers. That's pretty cool. We are your brothers. And even though you haven't been circumcised, we accept you as brothers. That must have, been, that must have felt incredible. And we'll see in the, in the next verses that they, they, they received the letter with joy. They were happy about it. I think that's wise of the elders. Ladies and gentlemen, through this life, we'll meet people that don't consider us as brothers. But we can still consider them as brothers. I like that. These guys went out, and their message, it says, disturbed and troubled them. In other words, they were concerned now. I've given my life over to Christ, and now you're saying I haven't done enough. You can imagine. The guys are mentioned by name. They mention Paul. They mention Barnabas. They mention Judas. They mention Silas. It's personal. These guys, we know them. We are the apostles. 
These guys we know, they are trustworthy. They have suffered for the gospel. They are wise. We're not just sending you an empty letter. It's one of the strangest things for me, to be honest with you. It's like the things that I hear happens in America. There was one instance um, where there was a lady who came to church, and she was uh, in some church of Christ somewhere in America, and she was uh, apparently a homosexual lady, and nobody went to see her. They, they wrote her a letter, and they put it in the mail and mailed it to her. Am I the only one that thinks that's weird for Christians to do to each other? Instead of me coming to see you, or at least coming to your house, dropping off the letter if I want to give a letter, personal. And what's beautiful here is, is they're saying, listen, we're sending you a message, but we're sending you trustworthy messengers with. You can trust them. They've given up their lives for the gospel. Beautiful. <clears throat> Once again, it's interesting what the text says. Let's read their verse... Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They bring in the Spirit. Who authorized this doctrine? The Holy Spirit. The text doesn't tell us how they knew the Holy Spirit said this, but based on what we read in other places in the text, I think there was prayer and fasting involved, in my personal opinion. So the apostles and the Holy Spirit made this call. It wasn't made up by man. And the goal was what? To make sure they do not carry unnecessary burdens to get to heaven. That's what it's all about. And this is for me interesting. Because the Greek word there used is baros. I just want to see which, which verse this, that is. Verse 28. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. That word there, burden, is baros, which means load, burden, or weight. It's almost similar to when Jesus spoke about the yoke on an ox's neck. So he says, we, we, we've got to lower the weight that these guys have placed on your shoulders. That's why I've entitled um, the lesson... Loaders or lifters? I've come across two types of people in my, in my life. Two, no, let me say not people. Two thoughts in the Christian um, religion. People who are loaders. They want to load up more requirements to get to heaven. They continually want to say, no, but you need to do that as well. And you need to do that as well. Oh, but you're not good enough. And you need to do this as well. And you need to do this as well. And they load it up. They load it up. They load it up. They are loaders. That's who these Pharisees were that went to Antioch. They were loaders. And then you get lifters. People who tell you, hey man, look at Jesus. He pays for it all. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, a loader, loaders are, I would say, overly conservative. They, they don't see the gospel. They, they agree with the gospel, but they don't really see the gospel. They see a holy God. Which is good, right? It's good to see a holy God. But if you see a holy God without the gospel, you end up with the wrong theology. So, when they look at this holy God, 
They come to believe that they must do everything they can to please Him. Otherwise, He will be displeased and He's a consuming fire. He's going to eat you up and spit you out. Because they just look at Him and they forget about the cross. And so, they have a natural tendency to rather be safe than sorry. So, the loader is the first century um, let's say he's a Gentile. A loader is the first century uh, Gentile Christian who says, okay, I accepted Jesus. I got baptized. I repented. Okay, I've changed my life. Okay. Um, but I want to make sure, because he's a holy God. You guys are saying oh, he's a holy God. So I want to make sure I'm going to have myself circumcised as well. And because he did that, now he goes around and tells everybody else, dude, just be sure, just circumcise yourself as well. That's a person that submitted to loading and is loading it now on others. And that's generally what happens. When you load on yourself stuff, you start loading it on other people too. So they load the burden. They accept the cross. They get baptized. But they also get circumcised to be sure to avoid any potential failure to lose out on heaven. Lifters, on the other hand, lifters, that's the type of people that um, the apostles are here in the story. They see a holy God. They see a holy God and His requirements and His justice and His judgment and His fire. They see that. But they see it through the cross. They see the cross first and then they see the holy God. Because they know the way to the Holy God is through the cross, not without the cross. They see the gospel. They see the heart of a loving God. And they trust Him to save them. They don't trust the load for salvation. They trust Jesus for salvation. The loader trusts his load he's carrying. The lifter trusts his Lord he's following. They trust his love. Not law. Now, you've maybe been waiting for this. You probably want to discuss the four things. The four requirements. The first thing that he says that you guys got to sort out is food sacrificed to idols. Food sacrificed to idols. Now, I don't think this is highly complex. Um, and if you want to study this further, you're welcome to do that. You can go read... 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and also go look at chapter 10. I might just read some of those verses if you want to. We'll see how the time goes. But the Gentiles, um, they were used to eating meat. Uh, they were sacrificed to idols. It was part of their paganism, part of their um, religiosity, um, part of their lifestyle to eat it. Um, they would eat it often in pagan temples. It's customary. It's the way you do it. But now that they've become Christians, it was a bit tricky to do that, to just continue in that lifestyle because they no longer worship those pagan gods, right? And um, they no longer associate it with those who did. Now, Paul addresses that at length in uh, the, the text that I've mentioned to you. And it seems like if you go read what Paul says there, he's basically saying, listen, you and I know 
that whether somebody has prayed over a piece of lamb or not, it didn't change the lamb. Right? Right. It's meat. Whether you pray over it or not. Now, something here in Sweet Home that you probably don't experience, but um, do you know what halal is? Does anybody know what halal meat is? You should know. You've got some buddies there. It must be so hard to live in Sweet Home if you're a Muslim. It must be so hard, man. But in South Africa, it's big. In Durban, it's, it's big. I mean, they have these... Basically, in, in Durban, every restaurant has got a sign that says halal meat or halal food. The food has been prayed over. As, as they slaughter the, the lambs or whatever, they pray over them. The imam comes and he prays over. A Muslim is not allowed to eat meat that wasn't prayed over when the blood was being shed. So it's a big deal for the Muslims. You cannot eat meat. The one day we were having a barbecue or a braai, I had some meat that was not halal, and I was brying, I was, I was barbecuing with a Muslim, and I, I shouldn't have done this. You know, it was my early days, but I turned over my meat, and I said, lick, 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 lick. He wanted to go nuts. Don't even touch meat that was not prayed over. So this was, this was serious in the first century, very serious. He would go every time, he'd take the tongs and go wash them off with soap and stuff, and then he'd come turn his meat. Didn't want my meat to touch his meat. Now, this is what Paul's getting at if you read those texts. He's saying, listen, the meat doesn't change whether you pray for it or not, whether it's made in a pagan temple or not. But what you've got to be careful of is the association. When you are a Gentile now and a, and a Gentile Christian and you go into that temple, you, you know that there's not, you can eat that meat maybe. Maybe you have that knowledge. But what about your brother who's also just become a Christian, he might look at you and think, hey, but you, are you worshiping the pagan god? Can you be a Christian and worship these gods still? And so he's saying, rather, rather not. Don't go close to this if it's going to make your, your brother who's in Christ to stumble. Because he might go in tomorrow and he might start worshiping that god and thinking he can be a Christian at the same time. Okay, you can go study that. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10. So, does this make sense to you why the apostle said this? Right? Not a good idea. You're a new Christian. You're no longer a Gentile. Just stay away from food sacrifice to idols. But then secondly, he talks about blood. Don't eat blood. Now, what is that about? And this for me was quite intriguing. Genesis chapter 9 verse 4 is the first time that we read about this. It says, But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And in various other places, um, in various other places, in various passages, the Jews were commanded not to eat blood. Not to eat meat with blood in it, or not to eat um, blood. The Jews were not allowed to eat blood because it contained life. That's how they understood it. It contains life. In actual fact, that's not how they understood it. That's what God said it is. The life is in the blood. Leviticus 17, you can go read that, 11 and 14. The use of blood was common among the Gentiles. They drank it often at their sacrifices, 
And they drank it when they made promises and pacts to their gods. Yeah, for crying in a bucket. Who'd like to drink blood? Oh, you know, you pull a tooth and there's blood in your mouth. And you're like, ah, I don't like it. I don't know how these people did it. To separate the Jews from them in this respect was one design of the prohibition. Don't be like the Gentiles. They just drink blood and eat it. But Genesis tells us that this prohibition existed long before Abraham. It was sort of part of the, the first time that God says you can eat meat. He says, no, 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 don't eat the blood. And don't eat meat with the blood in it. So, since blood was the essence of life, it could not be eaten, but was instead reserved for the priests who returned it to God by pouring it on the altar. If you go read Leviticus chapter 17. The prohibition on eating blood stems from the unique function God assigns to blood to be sacrificed to God as ransom for Israelite lives. There's value in the blood because it's the blood that is being poured on the, the mercy seat for the sins of the people. There's value in the blood. It's not something you eat. It's life-giving. It's an offering. Blood represents animals, which in turn represents humans. Then the question arises, Paul, what about the, the, what is the meat of strangled animals then about? Well, animals who died without the shedding of blood. That's essentially what it is. That's why you can't eat it. Because the blood is still in the meat, in the muscles. It didn't bleed out. That's why the Jews eat kosher, right? Which is an extensive process of getting the blood out. Um, so, I think that's pretty simple why they didn't eat it, right? So, you drain the blood of an animal caught in a snare before you eat it. Now, you're going to maybe find this, because I've picked up here yeah, the hunter's they don't do this. I don't know why it is the case, but I was taught this came through my forefathers. When you shoot an animal, you immediately hang it. You cut its neck and you hang it. All the blood has to come out. And you hang it upside down by the feet. Now, I don't know if it stems from this through the years or whatever, but... That's the first thing I do. I don't, want the, I don't want the blood to clot. And by the time I get home and I cut the animal open, there's a lot of blood stuck in the muscles. I don't want that. Don't know if it's part of this. All your hunters are disobedient to Jesus. Okay. I'm just joking. Just joking. We'll talk about it further in a moment. And then he says, and the last one is one we would have thought, right? Fornication. Sexual immorality. Porneia, the Greek word, where we get the word pornography from. Porneia is all illicit sexual intercourse. Now, I can think of two reasons why you would say specifically to the Gentiles, you've you, you got to watch this. Firstly, it was part of Gentile life to run after flesh and have sex with people whenever with whomever. I remember when I was um, teaching a bunch of young rugby guys, and there was a, a young guy from Lithuania. There, there's some parts of Europe that's really an immoral, immoral bunch of people. And we were talking about sexuality, and it's young men, 20-year-old guys, 19-year-old guys. You know, they are, 
they're running around on their hormones. And, and we spoke about the sexual immorality, you know. Don't just go sleep around and whatever. And he couldn't, he couldn't understand why not. Couldn't understand. Prostitutes and, and whatever. His, his pagan culture has taught him it's just a fleshly experience. There's no emotions involved. There's no consequences. There's no DNA exchange. There's no transference of disease. Like in Africa, you know, hey man, HIV, one in four people or something, or one in ten people, I'm not sure what it is. But where the world he comes from is like, nah man, it's just do whatever you want to do, like a dog on heat. So that's how the Gentiles were. There were no moral, uh, there's no um, moral ground for not doing whatever you wanted to do. So, okay, well, you are no longer Gentiles now, you are now Christians, and that needs to change because it's actually a sanctuous experience designed for a husband and a wife um, to, to enjoy and to reproduce. So that's the, the first reason, I think. You've got to change that lifestyle. But number two, it was practiced as a form of pagan worship. Not only were, you, were these guys really essentially um, immoral sexually, but their religion said you've got to do it to please the gods. Remember there was a, a temple in Corinth where there were a thousand prostitutes. All their, hairs were, their hair was shaved. Their job was day and night. When the, when the sailors arrived on land, they had to go into the, the sailors had to go into the temple, have sex with these prostitutes in honor of their God. For the forgiveness of whatever happened on the ship. And I'm like, you just sent yourself to hell. It's like crazy. It's a crazy world. And so when I can understand when the apostles say, listen, guys, you need to change that practice. Um, it's, it's not Christian. It's not Christian-like. All right. So numerous other places, Paul speaks about this sin. It's really frowned upon. I don't even think I have to go on about it, but I'll just share it with you briefly. Romans 1.29 lists it as something that the worst of pagans live by. It's a lifestyle. First uh, Corinthians six eighteen says same word pornea. Um, the body is meant for God, not for pornea. In other words, imagine this: you're Christians now. Your body belongs to God. He bought you at a price. You can't just go do with your body now what you want. First Corinthians six eighteen calls on people to flee from pornea because it is a sin against your own body. Right? People say all sin is the same. It's not. Pornea is the worst. Because you're sinning against your own body, Paul says. Galatians 5.19 calls it work, a work of the flesh. Ephesians 5.3 says there must not even be a hint of pornea among Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 clearly states that it is God's will that we abstain from pornea. There's only a few places in the New Testament where the apostles clearly say this is God's will. And this is one of the places. It's God's will that you abstain from pornea, sexual immorality. Now, I find the last line interesting. Look at that. You will do well to avoid these things that we, I've spoken about now. Very interesting. It does not say you will go to heaven if you avoid these things. You see that? 
What is the letter implying? These things are mentioned because they stimulate a Christ-like lifestyle. I think the apostles were careful of, of making it just a to-do list. Just a to-do list. And once again, it's four things. And if I do these four things, I go to heaven. I think the apostles were stimulating a lifestyle change. You no longer operate, operate like a Gentile now. The way you live, you're now going to operate like a Christian. And these are four things you can focus on to become that type of person. To break away from your Gentile life. You've been saved already. You belong to Jesus. Now, live your life as a servant of Jesus, apart from your Gentile background. And then the last verses go, So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. We just read that letter. Beautiful. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. They were happy. Judas and Sa you know why they were happy? Because it's the good news. And they were, it was a lifting letter, not a loading letter. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. I don't have much comment there. Perhaps the biggest question, also this morning I had lots of questions, right? Perhaps the big question based on the lesson tonight is this. Are these four restrictions valid for us today? Right? That might, might be a question that you have. Well, I don't think I've ever eaten food sacrificed to idols, have you? Not knowingly. Who has knowingly eaten food sacrificed to another God and it bothered your conscience? I don't think any of us. So, honestly, that's not a big deal in our world. But at the heart of the issue lies the concept that we must be careful to approve and do things that might somebody else cause somebody else to falter or fail in their faith. So that principle stays, but the concept of um, eating food sacrificed to idols is really uh, irrelevant to us. But if you want to get the deeper principle, go read 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. The blood and meat of strangled animals. Now that might be a debate. That might be a debate. I don't know. What do you guys think? Not eating blood and not eating strangled meat is a preference for me. But can you think of any reason why in our world today that would be a problem to eat? Yes, brother. Sure, absolutely. Same, sure. For the Jews, I think it was a big deal. They would be offended, offending the Jews, the Jewish Christians, if they just ate blood. 
Um, what about fornication? <laughs> Consistently, from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And that's a that's a that's a, a tough one. That's that's a tough one that's eating up our planet. People are that at 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 the root of most of the suffering on the planet lies that one thing. Abortion, broken hearts, broken relationships, orphans. Broken homes, diseases. Africa is rife with HIV. I had friends, lots of them, who had HIV. It's killing people. This thing kills a lot of people. And it hurts a lot of people. And I'm not even talking about the psychological damage. How many people do you know? I guarantee you, you know many people in your life. You might not know, but you've got many contacts in your life who has been molested, who is somewhere along the line touched by some adult and has caused deep psychological problems. Adultery. This is a... The, the Western society, I include South Africa into this, rife with adultery. Marriages broken up. Yours, mine, and ours children. I can't recount how many families I've met here where there's children from three different dads all because of this. And you know what? People hate it when you bring up this sin. Because they know it's the one they struggle to control. That's it for me. Anybody like to add? Throw something out?